Hey everyone, and welcome to Don't Skip, a podcast featuring the brightest minds in advertising. I'm your host, Zach Seckler. I'm a comedy director and photographer. You can check out my work at zachseckler.com. My guest today is Laura Weimer. Laura is executive creative director at FCB New York. She's been involved in the viral launch of Dollar Shave Club. She's been in the Adweek Creative 100. And just this year, she helped create an advertising first, a spot that featured moms breastfeeding on broadcast television. That campaign for the brand Freedom Mom earned widespread praise for its lighthearted approach and earned over 2 billion impressions along the way. I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. We talk through creating viral pieces of content for Dollar Shave Club, for Alaska Airlines, and Freedom Mom. And Laura shares her insights about building creative teams, about assuming a leadership role, and about what she looks for when hiring creatives. Check out Laura's website, imlew.com, to get a feel for her work and the spots we chat about. I had a great time connecting with Laura. I hope you enjoy our chat. This is Don't Skip, Laura Weimer. Laura, where are you from and what was your path into advertising? Yeah, so I born and raised in Kansas City. Big, big Kansas City fan over here. Uh, we still even have a place in Kansas City we can't let go of just yet. My path to advertising started very young. My dad had a magazine growing up, actually. And so he had a local Kansas City magazine. So art directors and writers were my babysitters. Oh. So I knew this world's pretty new. I remember he was advertising the magazine when it launched and he wrote a musical to launch it. And so he actually actually wrote a gridiron to promote it. And I thought that that was so weird. And I didn't really know that that's what advertising was. I had just seen that growing up. So uh, that really got me started into the creative world. And that with dance and art and art direction, that just sort of propelled me into Photoshop and being a maker and doing things with my hands. So drawing and learning to create from nothing was something I just thought was a little bit of a rebellion. You know, I, I liked creating things that no one had thought of or seen before. And I just loved that mentality. So that's kind of what propelled me into this creative world. And then in advertising, I got my start in, in video games, actually, uh, in Burbank. And again, so learning from illustrators and designers and just techniques, very, very technical training. The way I got that first job was through an internship on a whim that I got. And I had about negative $300 in my bank account at the time. And my second day, I just went to the big door and knocked on it. And I said, how do I get a job? You know, <laughs> what do I need to do to get a job? I'll, I'll learn however you want me to learn. And they trusted that. So I got lucky to jump in there. And since then, I've been around eight different independent ad shops, lots of different industries, pharma, video games, entertainment. And now I'm at FCB New York. Did you have a memory of your first kind of big break that really put you on, there's so many kind of breaks that one may have in a career, but a particular break that may have really put you on the path to ultimately where you are now as, a, as an ECD? Yeah, I think there are a few. There are a few big moments that I had really just learned internally. I don't know if it put me on a map or any, you know, of any kind. But the big moments I remember 
Remember when we released Call of Duty Black Ops and that cover was so important to people and, you know, this person sitting down in the mud instead of getting up in combat. And that visual is a big memory for me in the very, very beginning. Launching, you know, this is sort of a freelance creative direction role I had for Dollar Shave Club, helping launch that brand and then, you know, seeing it grow and turn into a, a, the acquisition from Unilever, that was a big moment. I'll tell you what, let's let's use that opportunity to talk about Dollar Shave because that's one of definitely that's one thing I'd love to chat with you about. So you we were talking a, a little bit offline about how you got involved. Anyone out there who who knows and loves advertising must be familiar with the original Dollar Shave Club viral video. Can you tell a little bit about the role that you played in those early days at Dollar Shave Club? Totally. So uh, this was a total freelance project. It was, you know, a friend of a friend. And I met Michael Dubin at a coffee shop. And he, you know, he was like, hey, I'm Michael. I have uh, a warehouse full of razor blades. And I remember being in Venice Beach being like, okay, what? <laughs> what is that? What did I actually get my hands into? And he was great, very visionary, very, very clear business ideas going on. And he was very ambitious. So you met him at a coffee shop just by chance or were you guys like... We met through a mutual friend. Uh, okay. So you were meeting for the first time at a coffee shop, yep. but you didn't just by chance. He wasn't like, hey, by the way, uh, I see you got your Starbucks there and my name's... Michael, no, it wasn't like that. Okay. That would have been amazing, actually. But <laughs> but we did, yeah, we did meet at a coffee shop, friend of a friend who just knew that I knew how to do identity work. And she was also an art director. She's a, she's a really good friend. And uh, and we had just met there and he had pitched me this business. And it was the, just the most Venice Beach kind of experience to have is, you know, I, I need this identity. I need this logo. And, and you know, knowing that it came and became this huge sort of mega game changer in sort of the body care space and even men's health space now, you know, that was a, that was a big reflection and it still, it still is changing and it's still sort of changing the industry a bit. So you guys met in this coffee shop and he said he's got a warehouse full of razors and he said he had this video that he made, right? So the video, the famous viral video had already been made, but there was a twist, right? It hadn't been shown yet. Yeah, it hadn't been shown yet. And it was it was really an internal, it was for internal purposes. It was for a bit of a pitch video, if you will, to people he wanted to talk to in the brand. And and I don't want to give too much away, but in the end, we all decided it was the best, the best way forward was to put that out in the world, especially with the VC company that had partnered with Michael at the time with its new identity and some music. And I think we redid the sound or something, something like that to polish it. But it really was not intended to be the sensation it was. In fact, I remember Michael having a little bit of hesitancy being the star of his brand. You know, that's that wasn't really his um, initial goal. It was it was really he didn't see himself as his own spokesperson. But you know, it was really exciting when he said yes <laughs> because he had he had studied improv, I think, right? So he kind of had a comedic background, and he clearly created this video on on a tight budget, but what it lacked in budget, it was very high in concept and comedy and is is definitely a spot that I really love and so many others do as well. Can you talk a little bit about, there must have been so much excitement during that time of 
when you had talked to him about, you know, fast forwarding in your relationship a little bit, you recommended making this video public instead of just a pitch video. What happened when it started to go viral and and what was that like? Yeah, because this was a freelance project, it was very much sort of a solo weird moment for me. You know, I wasn't celebrating with the team and I wasn't you know, with, you know, in the offices. So it was, it was almost bizarre to say, wow, this thing's really taking off and, and I'm seeing it just as much as other consumers are. And at a certain point you're like, okay, this, this thing that's getting, you know, your, your, your parents are seeing it and then your grandparents are asking you about it and your neighbor, you know, from back home is asking about it. And so it it just becomes very confusing and then exciting. And then, you know, you kind of say, wow, I, I helped make that, I helped shape that. So it was the early days, but really working with the, you know, the VC company science, they were, they just had this vision with Michael that was so tight and it's almost like they knew the destiny of it. And I think it launched that spot that went viral on the internet. You know, that was when YouTube seeding was a thing back then. uh, And this wasn't seeded at all, but it was Good Morning America, I think is what it launched on first. And I just thought that was crazy that that had happened. And it was amazing. That is amazing. What what impact did it have on on you or your career? One, anybody can be an entrepreneur, and I and I mean that as a designer, as an art director, as a creative director. But I also see that as you know, any entrepreneur you meet is worth pursuing if you believe in their vision. And vision is so important. Conviction is so important. And it doesn't just have to be some tested business model. It can be an idea that if you have enough excitement for it and ambition for it, those are the people you want to work with. And some of the identity that you did, which I'm just looking at on your website here, which again, I'm, I'm mentioning in the intro, but it is com. So I'm just looking at some of the identity stuff that you did, which is the logo and and the line. Yeah, the logo, the line. I think, I think you know, at one point, Michael and I talked about, it's like shave money, shave time, shave time, shave money. And I think it flipped a few times. It was very much about being having direct language. And that's how the site, the first 1.0 site had that same theory of very quick, very deliberate, you know, mm-hmm. don't waste any time for the consumer. So it, the entire strategy behind it all, you know, is, it was just about being direct and getting out of the way so the consumer can say, it's only a dollar a month. This should be hassle-free, you know, anywhere you approach the brand. Mm-hmm. It's such a clever line. Shave time, shave money. <laughs> it's so, it's perfect. It's it's clever, it's fun, and it perfectly describes what the, what the brand is about. Yeah, he's a smart one, that Michael Dubin. <laughs> Have you guys stayed in touch at all? A little bit, you know. I, you know, it's it's funny. You see the success, and that's when you know probably people start calling you back. You know, when you see all that success, uh, and so I was one of those people too that said, "Michael, wow, this this really took off. That really escalated quickly." You know, and I think he, you know, sent him a few congratulatory messages, and I think I even. When I when I heard he's now the, the head of the board, I sent him another note and we emailed back and forth at that moment as well. So, you know, it seems like he's he's never finished with his with his visions. I'm sure there's more to come with him. And then so after Dollar Shave, what what was the next step in your career? Uh, so at that time I had been working at Standard Time in Los Angeles, which is now Standard Black, and it's a small independent ad shop as well. And I had been working on a lot of CVS pharmacy work. And this was at the time CVS pharmacy and CVS health 
started becoming a thing and or the transition started at that time and CVS had let go of cigarettes and later on they had let go of of retouching for women's bodies and they really started turning from a convenience you know sort of store that sold unhealthy snacks and cigarettes to a, a really big health company that's now inside Target stores which would used to even be a competitor so that was a really big learning moment as well of of seeing a huge merger like that happen that was the next big stepping stone into my career. And then a career, you know, what feels like a career after that was, you know, skip a few agencies later is a mechanism, San Francisco. I worked on the Virgin and Alaska Airlines merger. And that was a, a really big shift as well to see those two brands sort of collide and see what comes of that energy. So tell me about Alaska Airlines. There's a lot of great Alaska Airlines work on your website. I think one of the most recent must be the safety dance video, which is clearly a COVID era reboot of the safety video. Everyone's wearing masks and it's a very kind of fun, upbeat musical number paired with a safety, in-flight safety video. Why don't we talk a little bit about that, about that project? Sure, sure. So this was working on an airline during the beginning of the pandemic it, you know it's I'll never forget it you know I'll never forget that feeling I'll never forget about how how every day new challenges come and every day is unpredictable but no matter what safety is a priority and um, how do you tell everyone that we're still the same brand we're still we still need to be safe and safety needs to be first but we can't lose who we are but you also can't go too far with that, right? So that balance of we're still here for you, we're still the brand you you know you love, and you know there's so much brand love at Alaska. There's such good people, but safety really truly remains their number one. That the music number in a safe space in a hangar actually sort of felt really right, and even a safe way to do a project like this and a, and a message like this. Um, but I, I do love. I do love a musical and I do love a, a song and dance, especially when times are hard. And sometimes we just need a little bit of lift to, to get through it. And then so for anyone who's not able to be watching right now to describe the, the concept and the spot, I don't know if you'd call, actually, I don't know if you'd call it a spot, but just describe the video. Can you take us through it a little bit? And also maybe what the, what the original brief was. Oh man, it's I should have I should have looked into this earlier, but I'm almost I'm almost sure this was a proactive idea. We had it was a part of a general ask within the quarter of, of what can we do during this time. And this was a particular sort of I think it, it fell into a brief after the brief came. The idea was already there. So Alaska a few times. I have another another uh, case study on my book called Swell Deals. That was also a sort of a bit of a proactive idea that then the brief kind of found its way. But it, it was why why don't we tell people how we're being safe in a fun way, uh, especially when competitors aren't and their uh, competitors are doing it the same. And so that idea had come from several, and we had just kept pushing on that idea. And it was sort of like, what's what time of year? When is this going to happen? Or Will the ship have had sail? Will the ship sail um, out of that idea? Because are we going to get out of the pandemic? And we don't need to say this anymore. There was so much unknown at the time, but it's good to know that you know we still absolutely need this video, and it still stands today, unfortunately. And so it's basically it starts off in an airport hangar. There's a big 
Alaska Airlines jet. There are flight attendants, and they're walking towards a plane with their bags. And it's it's called it's very has a very theatrical stage like feel to it, right? It's a musical number, and it's essentially you know going through all of the humdrum safety guidelines, but with in a very fun, upbeat way. So I imagine it must have kind of filled a bit of a gap emotionally and and been something that really stands out as people are trying to think about flying again, right? It was. It was bizarre that, you know, even the Surgeon General had had tweeted about it. And I, I think it, it made its way to some local Super Bowl spots. And it wasn't supposed to be, but it, it had such success that it ended up becoming a part of a TV buy eventually, which was which was great success to say, okay, when, when people rally around it and you use the real flight attendants, we used a local choreographer, used an amazing director, all the stars aligned. And so it, it's fun when things go out of order that way sometimes. So after the video was created, this was never the point, but it ended up becoming part of a TV buy. That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. The fact that people would want to watch a safety <laughs> a safety and flight safety video on TV is is quite a testament. Yeah, it's funny. We're probably going to talk about Frida here too, but mm-hmm. Dollar Shave Club this Alaska video and Frida were all I were all videos before the TV buy happened. Oh wow. And that's, you know, which is really bizarre that, you know, sometimes the idea comes before the plan. Sometimes it becomes it comes before the brief, even though that's something I, I, I kind of disbelieve in now. I really do believe in, in briefs still and, and really tight strategy, but the serendipity of great work, you know, and then the media by finding its way after the fact or you know, the internal rally around it happens after the fact is has been really interesting thing to watch. So I've I've heard and I can't I wish I could remember who where this kind of quote or this idea is coming from, but there's been I've heard many times about when conceptualizing an idea, creatives often are told to think about think about the PR headline mm-hmm. first and, and then kind of think backwards from there about getting the idea to that place, to that PR headline. And I guess in this case, it would be something like Alaska Airlines safety video, uh, you know, musical number. I can't actually think of a great line, but you get the idea of where the PR part of it is going. Is that kind of a, a general strategy or thought process that you think about? Yeah, it's so funny. Every year it feels different. You know, the PR headline does feel like it's popular now. It wasn't something that I, you know, I'm very art director driven, very uh, not much of a writer myself, but I, I absolutely, absolutely love a good PR headline. However, I, you know, a lot of time it's more to win the business, to see the ambition of the business than to sell a script. So uh, a lot of the time, it's a bigger picture for me to use the press headline tool um, to say this is how your brand should be talked about. Then this is how we should sell a commercial and or a kind of script. Mm-hmm. And then so I do want to talk about about Frida. Yeah. Is that when you were, that's when you were at Mechanism as well, right? Yes, that was uh, Mechanism San Francisco and New York uh, together. And then our, our Frida clients, Frida Mom, was we're in uh, Miami and we did a remote shoot in January and I can't believe that was this year that feels like years ago <laughs> um, but we even did 
a casting, you know, a remote casting, of course, and, and some, you know, in a pandemic and some women who were still pregnant, who hadn't had their babies that may be casted yet over the holidays last year. So it was a really rare experience. Let, let me just back up for a second. Can you, for folks who haven't seen this spot or can't remember it immediately, can you kind of tee us off and tell us a little bit about, about the campaign and the, uh, and the spot? Yeah. So, so Freedom Mom was launching its new breast care products. And that is for whether it's for something that your lactation consultant would provide or breast warmers and or things that help mastitis not happen. They'd come out with a, you know, I think around eight products in their breast care line. And they needed sort of a, a story to tell. And we really, really wanted to push an anthem. Uh, an anthem story. And we were just set when we had pitched the business that truth was the only thing we're going to tell. We're not going to make it funny. We're not going to make it ironic. We're just going to be truthful. And the brief, the casting, the team, we all just held hands and said, let's tell a story about, you know, truth. And so the spot ends up being the two spots, one censored, one uncensored. Uh, The spot is about two women's inner monologue of what it's like to breastfeed a baby and the struggles and or the questions you have. And sometimes there's a bit of a weave of where they cross and and where some of those inner monologues sort of become universal truths. And that video got more emotional response been written to more times than anything than this Freedom Mom piece about how it, it really made people feel heard and really made an impact on, on mothers. And to illustrate a little bit for sure. for folks listening. So the, the spot opens and there's two, I want to talk about the drama surrounding this spot a little bit too, because there are two versions. One is a longer full-length version that's uncensored and uncensored meaning there's a lot of breasts, babies feeding on mother's nipples, a very natural thing, of course, but that was censored. Um, And then there's the censored version, which is a 30. But in both of these versions, the the spot kind of focuses on uh, mothers who are breastfeeding in their homes, very intimate environments and struggling physically. And literally you're seeing them struggle holding their breasts, you know, trying to feed their babies, breast milk machines, breast pumps, and, and very kind of graphic, but in a realistic way, there's nothing you know, it's very, it's very natural the way that it's shot and has a kind of docu feel to it. Can you talk about how you guys ended up, you know, what the conversations were like around showing, you know, essentially nude women in these spots? Yeah. So there's two stories to tell there, well, there's several, but the two main stories is one, there's a story about censorship, about how why women can't show breasts, but men can show nipples. And why, why are we still in this place in 2021, we're still here in a place where we can't show our bodies for education, for health reasons, for empathetic reasons. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of devastating that we're not there yet. Uh, and, you know, we could have just told the uncensored story and that could have been enough for a lot of conversation. But we also wanted to tell a story of truth and the actual, the mental struggles, the the heartache that can come from breastfeeding and the which way to do this. So the education and the empathy that was very much in, you know, in support of women saying, Oh, okay, this is, this is bullshit. This is hard that 
uncensoring was the point and that was in the dialogue and just in the visual representation of showing nipples and mothers and showing something that is, you know, the most natural thing we possibly know. So we wanted both stories to be told, but we really felt like the idea of truth and empathy was was the biggest story to tell. And it is done in such a, a wonderful way that it has a, like I said, a natural feel. There's also kind of a comedic vibe to it of you know, seeing the struggles of, you know, how how kind of silly it looks with with breast pumps on and milk squirting out and you know hitting the, oh my gosh, the mother's yes. reflection in the mirror. That's a great moment. You should have seen that moment when we were like, "Do you think that you could try?" You know, that sort of like whatever you're comfortable with, but do you think that you could try to you know push milk out of your body? And we weren't expecting the mirror hit, but as soon as the mirror hit, everyone was like, yeah, it was like a Super Bowl. It was like a touchdown. We we're like, nice one. It was amazing that the rally on set for the virtual set that it was, was, was really fun. And, you know, the, the comedy was really funny too, because it was real, you know, the getting a clog out from your breast from a vibrator is real or, or using an electric toothbrush is real. And the commentary on that just, became a joke, but also it's just so funny how how common that is. So can you talk to us a little bit about the actual production, the casting of these real moms and the actual shoot, you know, what it was like, the process of capturing these real life moments with babies, with milk squirting around and and what the process was like? Yeah. So the casting, and it's funny how it was this year, but it feels like years ago. I, you know, time is time is crazy. But the casting itself was all remote and the mothers, you know, we were trying to get mothers with twin infants, you know, twin infants in a pandemic and they have to be of breastfeeding age, which a lot of the time can be within a year. So finding that was a bit of a struggle and doing a virtual casting and casting sometimes nine month pregnant women who, you know, we, we hadn't met their baby yet. And we would on set. And so that experience was was sort of wonderful because you just kind of had to trust and the work itself had to be their true story because we were using their real babies and they were showing their true experience. And so we really let their stories become a part of it. We didn't want to force anything that wasn't real uh, and wasn't natural. So Rachel Morrison, the director, was incredible and she you know, it was a one day shoot and it was in a one location and it was just really a day of trust and a day of a st- steady trust really. And that inner monologue script really led everything. And it was, it was one of the longest shoot days I remember because we let everything take its time because you can't, you can't force you can't force this magic to happen with, with real babies. So it was, it was really kind of a beautiful experience that you can get enough. You can take, take your time in a one day shoot. But I also appreciated how um, Rachel snuck some extra shots for us to really make this one sing. And how did you come to decide on Rachel as a director? What was the process like for finding a director for these, for the spot? Yeah. You know, she was just, she was in the front of our list for a long time to be honest. And we had, I believe we had triple bid the project and she just, she has this picture on, I think her Instagram still of her. She's a very successful 
DP and director. And there's this picture of her on Instagram holding a huge camera. And I think she's eight and a half months pregnant <laughs> and she's got like this sweet trucker hat on and, and she just sort of is like, I got this. And like that sort of badassery where she's sort of like moms can do anything. We wanted that spirit to come through the work. And so, you know, there are several things we loved about her work and her authenticity and of course her treatment, but also just the fact that she was sort of a badass mom already was also like the cherry on top. That sound, that picture really sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and I imagine that being having the dual skill set of director DP was probably really helpful for this, both in terms of the intimacy of getting these really kind of raw moments and uh, what I imagine were some safety issues around COVID with yes. having limited number of people. Exactly. It was like the stars had aligned because COVID or not, we want, obviously want everyone to be safe but also the intimacy was so important. So having too many people on set would have not created a good experience. So the fact that it was virtual, I think is important to say, you know, you know, it's okay that not all of us are there and there aren't 10 people standing by because I don't think we would have gotten the same kind of work. So mm-hmm. it definitely taught a longer lesson that if once we are fully out of this, if we ever are, we can maybe reconsider sets that are much more intimate. How many people were on set for this? Oh, very small. I think it. there are several people involved, but I, I don't think any more than four or five people were ever at camera. You know, it's like the at camera space was, was always very small. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. We really did learn during this time of how much you can get done with smaller productions. Yeah. And also, also the challenges too, for sure. And then let's just lastly on, on Freedom Mom, I'd love to talk about the kind of some of the drama, this highly publicized drama surrounding <laughs> if this would be run during, what was it, the, if it was going to be on during the Oscars, right? And then it ended up being on the Golden Globes. Is that, was that the? Yeah. So um, this particular spot aired on the Golden Globes, which was also a press headline that wrote itself for a breast care spot. But the previous Freedom um, spot was, I believe, pulled. I did not work on that piece, but Freedom Mom had already had some censorship issues. And so I think Oscars Oscars denied the first spot they attempted. And then this spot, the FCC, you know, was really collaborative and they had pushed themselves further than they ever had before on a spot like this. So for them, it was, it was groundbreaking. But even when this spot had launched on social media, some social media sites had taken it down because of these auto censors. And even my personal site sometimes gets flagged for nudity, you know. And so it's it's interesting how the FCC and the Golden Globes that was a bit of a struggle, but we got to found a common ground of that that censored piece, but showed enough to make it sort of groundbreaking for them. But then even the internet, you know, is still flagging it, you know, auto flagging it here and there, which just tells us we have a lot of work to do. Absolutely, it reminds me of a couple of years I was chatting with some creatives, Ricardo Casal and Juan Javier Pena, who were at David Miami at the time. And they did this PSA about breast cancer awareness. And the idea was because everything was so, is so censored, so tightly censored, they had a guy with moobs <laughs> uh, yes. on camera checking himself because you could show a guy with essentially breasts, but you can't show a woman. I know, it's crazy. Yeah. 
It's wild. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your time at Mechanism a little bit more. So um, just from, from reading a little bit about you, I understand that you kind of really helped build out the large Mechanism Seattle location. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about what that process was like? Yeah, the building out the Seattle office and I went back and forth from San Francisco, Seattle a bunch. And then, you know, I was collaborating with New York quite a bit as well, but it was, you know, building a team while keeping your client happy and saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, you, you know, don't, please don't look behind the curtain of us building a team. You know, it's, everything is, is wonderful all the time, all the time, you know, it was really valuable to learn and equally as hectic and, you know, my, my personal vitamin D deficiency and seasonal affective disorder of gray Seattle was, was real. And I, re- I just remember it feeling hard and like there was a huge struggle of how to get this team to really sort of feel like we're doing something different. So we started doing weird things. You know, we started, I remember we went farming one day, we did crabbing. We started this thing in the office called Crafternoon where we would just get off our screens and We'd either make claymation or cocktails. We just started collaborating in a way outside of screens to to turn the team into, you know, a bit of a close-knit, you know, brand that was Mechanism Seattle. was that weirdness. And uh, I remember I even got everybody on the team or we got everybody robes to be like, you got to rest. And Mm -hmm. so just the weirdness is what helped really build that office. Uh, More so than, than some of the work that created who we were, it was really finding who we were first and then the work came after that. And so how many people are we talking about? How what what did the team look like? How many people and at that time, yeah, at the time when I was there, we were up to about I think we were up to about 18. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we had started and this was between San Francisco and started. We had, you know, I, I was there when we had two in the office. Uh and then we just slowly kept growing and kept evolving. And I actually don't even know how many it is today. But it's exciting that that mechanism continues to grow and help even more offices one day for them. So there's a lot of obviously hiring when you're building a team, right? For folks listening out there who may be junior creatives, do you have any tips for them about the interview process? Or can you talk a little bit about what you were looking for in people when you're looking to hire? Yeah. Any insider tips or info? Yeah, this is this is kind of for the work and for interviewing. You know, I, I hate I hate looking at somebody's book and saying, "Oh, I know you." You know, that's just not who we are. Advertising is, and sometimes sometimes it's a negotiation between you and your client, and sometimes it's somebody's timeline and their journey. It's maybe sometimes not who they currently are, and so the interview is so important to sort of figure out what everyone wants and what kind of experience you want and what. What can I do to help catapult you to where you want to go? You know, is a is a is a personal mission of mine. But being able to be a confused creative and being comfortable with that, I think that is like the sweet spot to sweet spot to great work. You know, if you can be curious and confused but confident in that, then you don't think about the demons and the things you don't have. You start thinking about unknowns and weird and. Once you get comfortable with confusion, you know, the world is your oyster with creative, you know, it's, you can kind of be the the rebel we all really secretly want to be. I love that. Comfortable with confusion. 
I heard that from Dan Wyden. So Dan Wyden said that at small agency awards, when, when we won uh, at standard time, we won gold for an agency size of one to 10. And he had said that then. And I've, I've always remembered that. That's great. So it's about embracing what you don't know, being confident that you don't know everything. Yeah. And, and being cool with that, right? Yeah, we're just, we're, we're creators, but we're also people. And we have to remember that confusion is a part of the process and being the person who knows it all, who kicks the trash can and slams the door and is the loudest in the room, like that's over too. So just being, you know, that confident and okay with the confusion kind of, kind of space. Those are the kind of people I I like working with and, and collaborating with. And what about leadership more generally? You know, as a creative, you start off in a junior role and you get to more senior roles. You're right now, you're an ECD. When you are at Mechanism, you're in a, obviously a senior role hiring other creatives. Was taking on that leadership role something that came naturally to you or did you have to get comfortable with it? Get comfortable with the confusion? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or t- talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've been an ECD for about two and a half years now, and it feels still, you know, so brand new. It it feels like it's it's still a brand new job, but you know, trusting people and and trusting yourself, being okay with naysayers, being okay with it, you know, sometimes the, the team disagrees with you, you know, that new millennial phrase, imposter syndrome, you know, in creating tools to help yourself work through that. Um, there's just so much learning to, to always happen uh, in, in this world and in this position. But, you know, the big learning for this was that someone saw an opportunity for me and, but it was up to me to sort of take it and grab it and go with it and decide, you know, if that's something I wanted. So leadership has always sort of been a part of um, my aspirations, but I luckily was recognized by, you know, um, a couple of my CCOs to say, you know, you should really pursue this and you should, you should try because I think you can do it. And and that meant a lot to me. And you continue to pursue it and you're now an ECD at FCB in New York. Yes. And congratulations. Thank you. What has that adjustment been like? It's been great. Um, my two, I have two co-CCOs and they are really wonderful and it's all about trust and, you know, collaboration and, you know, always challenging the idea and, and hopefully always challenging our partners that are clients. So it's really about, you know, it's really great open book to have. And so, you know, it's been, it's been really wonderful and, Everyone wants to push the work to, you know, just not to benefit themselves, to benefit the world, their teams, other people. So it's a very outward sort of energy that I think is very exciting and maybe even, you know, a little new for this industry to feel that, you know, that this is an outward sort of effort than a self-serving industry that I think advertising can sort of get that stereotype. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was Adweek, one of your CCOs said, Laura is the perfect example of someone that uses creativity as an economic multiplier. Yeah. How do you how do you use creativity as an economic multiplier? <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then no no pressure, right? Yeah. You know, it's a, it, that was like one of the first things they had they had said or or written about me, which I think is is very sweet. Um, but it's true. You know, uh, my my history of work and the success of my work has only been surrounded by you know, fiscal success. And 
you know, when you think about, you know, Dollar Shave Club and this, you know, meeting somebody in a coffee shop to sell it, you know, it sort of being acquired for a billion dollars, you know, that's creativity as an economic multiplier 101 right there. Or, you know, Freedom Mom had record-breaking site traffic with zero media placements, uh, you know, when that launched. I've seen the same with, you know, Method Home. I've seen the same with Alaska Airlines, the smaller projects that are smarter sometimes are the biggest economic multipliers. And and, and a lot of times they're the, the most creative ideas. So I, I definitely believe that creativity can change many things mm-hmm. in, for your brand and, and for business. That's what advertising is about, right? Ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it, you would think so. It, we, I think we sometimes we get lost along the way or we, ha- or I have over the years that we're like, we're, what are we doing? And you, yes, we're, we're, we're trying to help, people with their businesses and, and their lives and we're, we're trying to make change for the better along the way. So, you know, that, that is, it is good to sort of reflect on the goal at hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, for me, as, as a, a creative who, you know, as a director and a photographer who helps create the actual visuals behind these campaigns, you know, I'm in love with, with the creative side of it. But when that creative can have such a, a positive impact on a brand and especially, you know, brands that have such great purpose like Freedom Mom. Um, it's it's such a win-win. So, and you've, you've clearly done that uh, time and again. That's wonderful. So you mentioned early on about how your dad had a magazine and you mentioned something about there being, was it, did you say there was a dance performance or was there a, uh, a theatrical quality to something he was doing. Yeah, he had made like a, a gridiron kind of musical yes. advertisement for his magazine. Okay. Yes. So okay, that so the re- that reason I'm mentioning that is that kind of like a light bulb went off because as I was reviewing all of your work, I noticed a through line. There's a lot of kind of musical numbers. There's a theatricality to a lot of the work that you've been a part of. Not all of it. You've done a lot of kind of traditional dialogue spots, but. There are, you know, with what we've talked about with Alaska Airlines and with Method Home and Everlane, there's a kind of musicality and performance aspect. Does that go back to your childhood and back to your dad's magazine in some way or? Yeah, I mean, the right thing to say is no, because this is for the consumer <laughs> and these advertisements are not for me. So so the right the right moral thing to do is to say absolutely not. <laughs> However, you know, I'm a bit of a like a I think it's a little bit of synesthesia and dyslexia on my end and that sort of like feeling feeling colors and being very feelings based more than literal based is a lot of my career in the beginning. So like just sort of literally feeling out what work is or, you know, if you need it to be happy, why not a dance move than a dialogue or, or a dialogue driven script, or why not use joy and energy through rhythm and music? I, I think that that is so powerful and it's so memorable and people look first and read second in advertising. And, you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago is the opposite. You know, you'd read a headline to see if you'd read the article. And now, you know, we Instagram and things have, have totally flipped a 180. So visual first in order to opt in, I think is now the new sort of strategy of a lot of work. And so um, I do, I do thank my family and their love for musicals and dance and rhythm and color. But I, I also do believe that it can definitely 
be a memorable device as well. And what about another trend that I see is a, a kind of lightness and a, a comedic tone to a lot of the work that you've been a part of. Where, where does that come from? Is that is that part of part of you in some way, or have you? Yeah, part of me. Part of me feels that sometimes, and you know, this isn't this isn't on any any particular human or organization of any kind. Sometimes women get lighter roles, and sometimes women get lighter brands. And and men, I mean, light in tone because they think that's a great casting. But I think the future is actually a much broader approach. You know, funny, serious, dramatic, masculine, feminine. Hopefully, is is the future of my work and the work of my team that it doesn't feel always light, but I have seen it be traditional, very traditionally that sometimes women are put in lighter roles. And so I think it's exciting that I think that's changing. And I think that at the same time, my work is changing. However, I'm I'm definitely not done with the song and dance or or comedy in it by any stretch, you know, hopefully widening the aperture instead of tightening at this phase. And I want to talk to you about a couple kind of larger creative questions. One is that based on the fact that you've been a juror at several award competitions, one show, the Webbies, AICP, and you've also, your Adweek Creative 100 member, you know, these are all big things that I think a lot of creatives kind of fawn over and fantasize about uh, when they're in the kind of more early stages of their career. Can you talk a little bit about how any of these experiences have impacted your career? Yeah, you know, it's being a juror, I'll say is it's, it can be a lot of work, you know, hours of videos and case studies and phases of entry. It's a big privilege and you, it is a lot of work because you're helping shape somebody's career a little bit with these awards and they mean a lot to people and they mean a lot to business too. And like that also can be, awards can also be a bit of an economic multiplier for brands as well. So it is definitely something to, to take seriously, but it is also a lot of work and it, it can be very rewarding um, the juries themselves are also great when you get a dialogue or you get in a room with with everyone talking about the work and you also see, wow, everyone's opinions are so wildly different. And that is what's so exciting. There shouldn't be one way to think about work. There shouldn't be one kind of judge. And and that I think is is really cool to see that, yes, some of the best work rises to the top, but also there are so many different opinions among leaders. And, and so everyone really needs to sort of continue to hone in their own. And, and what makes it unique is, is definitely going to be their superpower. Mm-hmm. And what about the impact on your career? Has it, do you notice that, you know, being on, being a juror in one of these competitions, does it have any, you know, can you say that, you know, this experience led to this opportunity? I don't, you know, I don't know. I've, I've thought of myself really as somebody who was just so under the radar for so long and had never had a lot of, of press until, until the last few years. And that's really just because I've, I've wanted to stay in the independent small agency world. You know, sometimes you have to make a decision to hire someone instead of submitting yourself for an award. And a lot of the time you choose the, you know, hiring someone, you know, when you're trying to, to create a small business. So 
I think they have changed my career for the better, but I also know that I'm, I'm behind compared to so many people and in awards. And I'm okay with that because I I love small business and I love independent businesses and it's just a different world than the networks. And FCB New York is my first network uh, that I've belonged to. And it absolutely runs like a small business, which is is very exciting that I kind of get to have best of both worlds right now. For anyone that has been given the opportunity to be a juror or would want to be, do you think that it's, would you recommend it? Definitely. I mean, I would recommend being a juror, but I would also recommend just being somebody who takes an archive of things they like at all times. You know, always build, keep your archive going. I even like looking at, you know, Fashion Week and I like taking screen grabs of my favorite trends that I see, or I like taking, I screen grab my phone multiple times a day and you just always keep an archive of work you love or videos you love. And I think being a juror, yes, you see what the year has made, but I think that it's just just a part of the archive process. It's just on a different kind of level. Um, But I think just always keeping it fresh is is important. Mm Mm-hmm. What about on the career topic? What about, you know, you've worked with many directors, photographers, other commercial artists. Is there something you would like to say to those folks listening that they might not know about the process of advertising, of how an ad, how a brief comes about, how the process of developing creative comes about and how they come into the fold? Is there anything you would like to any advice or um, anything you'd like to impart from your point of view that you think that commercial artists may not sometimes understand? Sure, of course. Well, one is sort of thank you to the people I have worked with. Some, some people are like very good friends now or just people I continue to look up to or it feels like you have a community of of people who, you know, may, may hate advertising, but they work on it a little bit. And then, but so they're your friends, you know, sometimes outside of it. And it's really just about the work. And, and those are such great people you meet in, in this life. And so thank you first and foremost to those people who I've worked with and, and gotten the privilege to work with. But for people I, I haven't worked with yet, I've been asking this question of what do you want the experience to be like? And that is so much more important to me these days than the treatment itself or the interpretation of the work because collaboration and experience is just becoming so much more important in life that the way we craft together or saying we're going to craft it as we go and 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 maybe even meet up in an earlier stage of the process than than more traditional that the experience you want to have I think is just as important as as your treatment and in your POV of the work. It's a new world that is about collaboration and honestly kindness than the Hollywood stereotype that I think is also going away. So can you give a, an example of that? Maybe, you know, not with naming names or anything, but about what you just said, going a little bit deeper on what you're talking about, you know, what you want the experience to be like with, you know, with a director you know, when they're bidding on work, aside from the treatment and the creative call, can you give an example of what, what you're talking about? Sure. You know, I've had experiences on set where you're just, you're, you're at camera and there's a collaboration and you're saying, oh, let's try this, let's try that. Or did we get the thing we need? Did we make some wiggle room together to try something where we didn't think of yet because of how the stars aligned of this day? And, and that kind of effervescence is really fun. And you kind of get some of the best work in those moments. 
you know, I've also seen moments that when you get even close to a director's chair, even though you have picked this director, they won't even make eye contact with you until the wrap, you know, and, and sometimes that can be kind of, you know, it kind of puts a damper on the project and really this is about the work and the business, not about that day. So, you know, I think it's really about finding people who are like-minded, sort of like the interview process that we were talking about earlier. It's that thriving in confusion together, not just saying, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, moving on. You know, it's it's a different world. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather play in the weird space than than have a right or wrong answer before we we begin working together. And what about any advice for junior creatives, aside from the interview process, which we talked about a little bit, you know, any junior creatives listening who would love to one day, one day be in an ECD role or a senior creative director role, any advice for them on their path, on that path rather? Yeah, on their path, sure. Um, if I could give any one singular piece of advice, it would be to don't wait for somebody else's schedule of what you want. There, I guess we're in the phase of what we call a great resignation. And I think that that means there's a, is a, a lot of space for ambitious people and there's a lot of space for change and there's a lot of space for growth. So don't work on someone else's schedule, work on yours, figure out what you're excited about, try stuff, but do it on your schedule and on your terms if you can. Laura, that was that was great. I've really I've enjoyed talking to you so much. This has been really wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, you as well. This has been great. And it's always therapeutic to answer some of these questions because you really don't think about them. <laughs> and so it's this has been helpful. So thank you. Oh, great. So where could people find and follow you? My initials are L-E-W. So it's just imlew.com is where some of my work is, not all, but some. And I guess I'm on Instagram, but not in a cool way. Um, so, so I think uh, I'll, I'll figure out if there's a cooler way in the future. But I, right now, it's just my old school site. Thanks, Laura. All right. Thank you, Zach. Thank you again to Laura Weimer. You can find out more about Laura on her website, imlew.com. Once again, I'm Zach Seckler. You can check out my comedy directing and photography work over on my website at zachseckler.com and on Instagram at Zach Seckler. A new episode of Don't Skip will be out in two weeks. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, don't skip those good ads.